Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The Battle of Mosul, Iraq, began exactly three years ago this month. Iraqi government forces and allied Kurdish militias, with backing from the United States and other key international partners, sought to retake Mosul from ISIS, which captured the city two years earlier. Mosul is the second most populous city in Iraq. The fighting that ensued was the most intense urban warfare since World War II. The liberating forces went neighborhood to neighborhood, house to house, to recapture territory. It took nearly a year, but eventually ISIS was evicted from Mosul in the summer of 2017. The journalist James Varini embedded himself with the liberating forces and the civilians displaced by the conflict. He witnessed the fighting and its impact firsthand, which he masterfully recounts in his new book, They Will Have to Die Now, Mosul and the Fall of the Caliphate. On the podcast today, James Varini discusses the significance of the battle to both the fight against ISIS and to the overall politics of the region. We kick off discussing the long history of Mosul, the events leading up to its capture by ISIS, and the eventual liberation of Mosul by Iraqi and allied forces. As James Varini explains, the Battle of Mosul was a key moment in the eventual downfall of ISIS in Iraq as a whole, and the implications of this fighting continue to reverberate today. The book is extremely well-written. I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com and really do encourage people to check it out. As always, if you have questions for me, if you have people you'd like me to interview or topics you'd like me to cover, I'd love to hear from you. Please send me an email. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or just hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And one note of encouragement before we begin to check out Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it's needed most, Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with journalist James Farini. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So Mosul uh, is in northern Iraq, near the Syrian border and near the Turkish border, and not too far from the Iranian border. It's uh, very near the border of Iraqi Kurdistan, um, which, as you know, has become an autonomous region 
or semi-autonomous region in the last 15 years. Uh, Mosul is one of the oldest cities in the world. It was known uh, more famously uh, in biblical times and in the ancient Near East as Nineveh. At one time, uh, in the, the early, Noah, Noah, and, and the the flood, uh, Jonah, 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 and the whale, Jonah, Nineveh, right? Jonah and the whale, precisely, yeah. precisely. So Nineveh was uh, in the early first millennium BC, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, or as historians sometimes call it, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which in its day was the largest empire in the world that we know of, and Nineveh, which would later become Mosul, the largest city in the world that historians know of, they believe um, at that time. Um, and, uh, so it's one of the oldest cities in the world. Um, and it's always been a kind of place apart. Um, it's always fallen under the auspices or, of one or another empire, whether Assyrian or Babylonian or Parthian, um, or Abbasid or Ottoman, but, uh, Moslawis, as they're known, have always considered themselves a people apart, um, an independent people, never entirely under the thumb of whatever empire or caliphate happens to be ruling in the region at the time. Um, one one man I know, a, uh, a longtime resident of Iraq and, and keen observer of Iraqi politics, likes to call Mosul the end of the river. And when I asked him the first time what he meant by that, he said, I mean it like Conrad did, hmm. meaning heart of darkness. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, Mosul has always had a sinister connotation about it. In the Bible, the Assyrians uh, mistreat the Hebrews worse than even the pharaohs or the Babylonians do, or the Romans do. Um, later on, uh, Mosul, like much of the rest of Iraq and Mesopotamia, became something of a backwater in the Near East when the center of power became Istanbul. Baghdad uh, had been the center of the Islamic world, uh, and in many ways the world, um, in the medieval period. But by the time, uh, by the 20th century, Mosul and Mesopotamia were a backwater. This all changed when oil was discovered in northern Iraq around Mosul, or rather noticed by the Western powers who then colonized a great deal of the area, including uh, Mesopotamia and the city of Mosul. Um, jump forward to 2014. So by 2014, um, Nouri al-Maliki has been uh, the president in um, uh, Iraq, uh, or sorry, prime minister of Iraq uh, for years. He's in his second term, and he is uh, greatly despised by, by much of the Iraqi population, most notably the Sunni population. At the same time, ISIS, uh, the Islamic State, is on the rise in Syria. Now, the Islamic State had... Uh, begun in Iraq. Um, it had come out of Al-Qaeda, and it was a direct um, reaction to Iraqi politics, to the American invasion, of course, of 2003, but also to domestic Iraqi politics as they had developed since 2003. Yeah, uh, Nuri al-Maliki, it should be noted, is, is a Shia and sort of ruled in a way that many Sunnis seem detrimental to their interests. Exactly right. He is um, he's a, a, an out-and-out Sunni, or rather Shia nationalist. He'd spent most of his life before being inserted into the prime ministership, uh, largely by Amer the Americans. He'd spent most of his adult life in exile, including in Iran. Um, it, w it was the belief of many Iraqis, not only Sunnis, that he was doing the bidding of Tehran, and in certain ways they were certainly right. Um, in any event, by 2014, 
the circumstances are ripe for um, for ISIS's move into Iraq from Syria and the activation of its cells within Iraq. Um, so in early in the first days of 2014, uh, ISIS's columns uh, roll into Ramadi in Anbar province, very near uh, Baghdad, and they quickly take over most of Anbar and a great deal of northwestern Iraq in a matter of months. In June of 2014, they roll into Mosul, the second largest city or third largest, depending who's counting, in Iraq. Uh, and by this point, it's essentially theirs for the taken. Moslawis, like so many other Iraqis, particularly Sunni Iraqis, are so fed up with the Iraqi government, with Maliki, and with their treatment at the hands of the Iraqi security forces, who are also dominated by Shias, and many of them rabid Shia nationalists. They're so fed up by this point that I, uh, that they consider ISIS and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, its, its leader, as a reasonable, um, indeed a desirable alternative to the current Iraqi government and to Maliki. So when um, the Islamic State columns roll into Mosul in June of 2014, the city is essentially theirs for the taking. The thousands of troops and police who are stationed in Mosul uh, flee, most of them, before, before uh, the columns even arrive. Almost no one puts up a fight. And within a few days, Mosul is ISIS's entirely. It's occupied the entire city. Um, Can I ask, you know, as part of your reporting for your book, you, you know, interview and spend a lot of time with families uh, who who lived through that moment. Yeah. Um, And they seem to have like a perhaps a more nuanced view of of ISIS than, say, I would, um, you know, thinking, you know, ISIS is like this embodiment of evil. Uh, But if if you're there sort of experiencing what what they experienced, um, they had, you know, it seemed like perhaps like almost a neutral view of of, of ISIS. Could you explain, I suppose, like what what were many of these families who you reported on, who you you spent time with sort of responding, reacting to this this moment? Yes. So neutral isn't the right, exactly the right word. Many of them had a, had a, f- a favorable view of ISIS. But you have to remember that for them, they viewed ISIS, they viewed the Islamic State largely as a political revolution. For that, for many Muslims and Iraqis, and indeed many uh, Sunnis across uh, the Near East um, and elsewhere, uh, the Islamic State was not primarily uh, a religious movement um, or an extremist religious movement. What it was was a political movement. It was a political reaction to the Shia-dominated government of Iraq. And it was also a a political reaction or seemed like a kind of political revolution against the larger ascendance of Shia nationalism in the region, right? Since 2003, since the American invasion, Iran had ascended rather remarkably um, in the region. Um, it, had, it, of course, was responsible for many of the insurgents who fought U.S. forces and international forces in Iraq, is responsible for Hezbollah, responsible for, for supporting Assad, uh, and many other things in the region. So many Sunnis across the region um, were increasingly fearful of the, of the wider ascendance of, of Shia nationalism uh, and this was the case with with most most Lawis I spoke with who um, who welcomed ISIS into Mosul in 2014. They saw it as a valid alternative and indeed the only alternative to the Iraqi government, to the Maliki government, 
Some of them saw it as the sort of their answer to 79. They saw it as their Sunni revolution finally come around. Um, and they were willing to put up with a lot um, as they held on to this notion. Uh, at first, the Islamic State was very kind to Muslawis and uh, helped the city a great deal, fixed things in the city, uh, lowered rent prices, um, uh, fixed uh, uh, food prices in the markets. Um, but as you know, and as, as we've all read and seen over the course of its tenure in Mosul, to take just one city, uh, the, their, their regime ceased being a political revolution and became um, a religious uh, extremist movement regime and a death cult. Um, but, but many, many Muslims I spoke to went through the same experience that you're talking about, the same movement from seeing the Islamic State as a um, legitimate and indeed the only oppositional political force fighting against the Maliki government to finally seeing it for what it really was, at least in this context, which was um, a theocratic, uh, sadistic regime. So your book largely tracks the, the battle to retake, to I'd say like liberate uh, Mosul from yes. ISIS. Um, can you describe like who were the forces doing the fighting and what was some of like the broader kind of geopolitical um, backing that they were served, that, that they experienced and that was a context in which, you know, that, yeah. that fight to retake Mosul occurred. Right. So the fighting in Iraq, as opposed to in Syria, you know, we have to remember that the caliphate encompassed uh, a great deal of eastern Syria, as well as most of northwestern Iraq. The fighting in Iraq, as opposed to in Syria, was carried out mostly by Iraqi forces, at least on the ground. So you had Iraqi regular forces, you had Iraqi special forces, mostly in the form of the uh, counterterrorism service, uh, service rather, which is whom I spent most of my time within Mosul. Uh, you also had Kurdish fighters uh, fighting up in the Kurdistan region and, and just outside of it in the northeast of the country. You also had Shia militia, um, many of whom were sponsored by uh, Iran um, or Hezbollah. Then um, there was a great deal of overlap with the Shia militia and with the uh, Iraqi security forces. In fact, uh, by the end of the Battle of Mosul, the Iraqi government had made it so the Shia militia were incorporated into the military. Um, so on the ground, you had mostly Iraqis uh, fighting in certain battles, such as the battle for Decrete. You had um, Iranian fighters coming in, Al-Quds, uh, coming in to help with the fight against ISIS, because at that time, 2015, it wasn't at all clear that the Iraqi military was going to be able to defeat ISIS. They were doing very badly against it, in fact. By the time we get to Mosul, which is the, which is the big climactic battle of this, of this war against ISIS in Iraq, at least, uh, and it began in, the, in October of 2016 and lasted for roughly nine months. By the time we get to that, there is in addition to all of the Iraqi forces, um, the regular forces, the militias, uh, the Peshmerga, which are the Kurdish troops, uh, and then local sort of local bands who are helping out. You've also got this huge international coalition um, working both together and independently. So you've got the United States and Britain and France and Australia and Canada uh, running the, um, the air war and the artillery support 
for the invasion of Mosul. Um, you've also got spread out throughout northern Iraq. You have some Turkish forces. You have uh, some um, um, uh, other Kurdish forces, uh, possibly even other Iranian forces. There were a lot of people milling about. There were also a lot of volunteers from various countries, uh, many of whom came as medics, some of whom came as sort of half-assed mercenaries. Um, when it, but when it came to the invasion of the city of Mosul itself, the initial portion of the invasion, which I describe in the book, the first few weeks of it, um, were carried out by the Kurdish Peshmerga, who pushed uh, the remaining elements of ISIS uh, in, the, um, in the river valley uh, towards the city. And then, beginning in roughly uh, November, early November of 2016, it was the Iraqi special forces who and, penetrated Mosul. And it's fair to say, you know, that this battle was probably like the most significant, you know, urban battle of, of the modern era. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Pentagon in its typically um, muddling, muddling verbiage called it the most significant urban combat since World War II. Now, what they meant by significant, they didn't really say, but you could measure that um, any number of ways. Um, certainly, it was the longest uh, urban battle since World War II. Um, and I, I, for numbers of dead, I don't know. But if you compare it to, say, like the Battle of Way, I think the Battle of Way in Vietnam took between two weeks and a month, something in there. The Battle of Mosul was nine months long. Um, there had been the battle of the two battles of Fallujah in Iraq in 2003 and four. Those were both uh, several weeks, but again, this was nine months. So this was a climactic. You were right. This is the, the climactic battle, not just of the uh, the war against ISIS uh, in Iraq or Syria, for that matter, but also in a way the climactic battle of what we used to call the war on terror, right? Um, and ironically enough, it was a climactic battle of a war on terror, a war which didn't have any set piece battles, with the possible exception of Fallujah in 2003 and four. No one, no one really thought that set piece battles of this kind um, would happen again. Yeah, like you the know, war on we, terror we, was, you know, conducted by drone strike in Yemen, right? Not, it, yeah, the, yeah. The war, the war on terror was ambushes. It was IEDs. It was skirmishes. It was raids it was drones it was you know um yeah it was you know fought mostly in the dark uh mosul was a street by street house by house melee uh of the type that you know humanity really hadn't seen in a long time well, and it's 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 doubly let me just yeah. it's doubly ironic because um the it's doubly ironic because of course isis came out of al-qaeda uh, in its way. And it was the most successful uh, jihadist insurgency. Uh, it was the most successful jihadist insurgency precisely because it captured territory and so much territory. But if you're successful as, as a jihadist insurgency, you capture territory, that means you have to try to hold that territory. And so rather than rather than bringing war into the future with jihadism, what Baghdadi and ISIS ended up doing Though they, though they were very forward-thinking and very technologically savvy jihadists and warriors, what they ended up doing was kicking the nature of warfare back 50 years into the 20th century. So 
I wanted to talk a little bit about like the humanitarian fallout of this conflict. I mean, I, so I had followed these uh, events kind of through the prism of how the UN was preparing to respond to the humanitarian fallout. And I remember in the, you know, months leading up to the final assault on Mosul, what it was you know, long telegraphed that this uh, attack would happen. Um, yeah. UN humanitarian agencies were warning of, you know, worst case scenario, 1.5 million people in need of assistance, talking about how they yeah. only had had um, space and, and camps that they were setting up for 60,000 people because you know they didn't have the funding to build build more tents. But eventually, yeah. th that funding did come as the fighting started. And I remember, yeah. you know, it must have been like a year after um, the the start of, of the battle. Maybe it was in September of 2017 where I uh, talked to Lisa Grand, who's, who's this uh, UN humanitarian coordinator. She's an American who was kind mm. of the UN humanitarian lead um, in Iraq at the time, who described up to which to me sounded like a very unprecedented and unique kind of humanitarian response by the UN, in which they mm. were providing like frontline triage to this um, to, to, to wounded civilians and even perhaps wounded warriors as well. Uh, but also it seemed that they were able yeah, to that, avoid. That wasn't, that was not happening. There, okay. was, there were not, there was not hum, UN humanitarian work going on in Mosul as the, as the fighting was happening. Not in Mosul, but perhaps in like the, the camps outside. Um, in the camps. Yeah. 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 That, camps, that, yeah. yeah that, that would seem to, it seemed that they were able to prevent this kind of worst case scenario that they were planning for from going from, from occurring. And I, I would just kind of wanted to get a sense from you, how you saw that humanitarian operation as this fighting was going on and, and sort of what you saw. Right. Well, what I saw, so, uh, many, many Muslims and many, um, Iraqis from Northern Iraq ended up in Kurdish camps, camps in Kurdistan, which were not run by the UN. The UN helped out and other NGOs helped out, but they were largely run by, the Barzani Foundation, the foundation of the president of Iraqi Kurdistan. Mm. Um, what I saw of the UN camps in other parts of Iraq, in Anbar and um, and other states, I was not terribly impressed by. I wasn't impressed by the response very much at all. Um, they were, of course, overwhelmed with with millions of refugees or internally displaced persons. Um, but I, I've spent a lot of time in a lot of refugee camps around the world in Africa and Asia and elsewhere. And, uh, these were certainly, uh, the worst camps I've ever seen. Why that was, I don't know. Uh, when it comes to humanitarian response, uh, near, near or on the front lines, there was, there was none from the major international organizations. Most of the humanitarian response where it came to medical care was coming from very small volunteer groups hmm. who were sending sending volunteers to the US, to uh, Iraq from from Europe and the U.S. and occasionally other places. Um, in fact, there was a great deal of discussion uh, and, a, and a great deal of consternation as to why uh, no large international organizations, whether it be Medicine Sans Frontieres or um, you know or whatever else were working near the front lines because God knows the Iraqi soldiers and the civilians could have used the help. The Iraqi, uh, even the Iraqi special forces are woefully lacking in, in, um, in medics, uh, in terms of food distribution, uh, in Mosul, as the battle was going on, that was carried out almost entirely by the Iraqi 
military, um, where perhaps they were getting the food from the UN or another international organization. I don't know. Mm. Um, but when, when it came to um, humanitarian aid to Muslims who were trying to survive this battle, it was mostly um, foreign. It was mostly um, the Iraqi military, uh, to their great credit, and um, uh, foreign volunteers for very small organizations, and then also a lot of um, a lot of local groups, including Shia militias, who were coming in to distribute stuff. Uh, even though Mosul is a famously Sunni majority city. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of uh, that 2016 battle today? Like, like what are there? Um, what are like the lasting implications of of how that battle was conducted to how life in in Mosul is today? Right. Well, as uh, you'll recall, that when Kissinger went to China uh, before Nixon's famous trip in what was it 72, and Kissinger went to China beforehand to prep. Uh, Nixon's trip, he went, Kissinger went, went, went uh, secretly, and he sat down with uh, Zhou Enlai, uh, and he said, uh, Mr. Zhou, uh, what do you think were the results of the um, French Revolution? This is in 1971, and, and Zhou said, it's too early to tell. <laughs> so uh, that, that's certainly true of Mosul. Mosul is still a mess. It's still, half of the city is still destroyed. Um, it is there's uh, there's still, as far as I know, um, um, a, a regime of largely show trials um, in which people are getting convicted of being jihadis with very based on very little evidence. There may or may not still be a campaign of uh, revenge uh, being carried out uh, by Shia militia and others among northern Iraqi or against northern Iraqi Sunnis. The. Um, the, some people will tell you that the, resu the results of the successful war against ISIS in Iraq, and particularly the victory in Mosul, that the results are that um, Iraq has been sort of uh, immunized against religious politics, um, that it's gone through enough sectarian warfare uh, that it is no longer, that Iraqis are no longer interested in sectarian politics, you know, uh, essentially Shia versus Sunni. Uh, I don't, I, I think that's a very optimistic view. My feeling when I left Mosul two years ago now, and my feeling still following the news coverage from Iraq, which, which has had been sadly, uh, very lacking in the last couple of years is that, um, the war against the Islamic state, uh, and the ensuing campaign of revenge and, and sectarian, Hatred is is probably going to end in another sectarian war, a mm. civil war of the sort that we saw in the mid 2000s after the American invasion. Um, the Islamic State is not going to go away as an idea and as a group. It'll it'll morph, uh, just as Al Qaeda and many other groups have. It'll morph and it will go underground. And um, but it's not it's not going to disappear. This brand of jihadism. Um, ISIS may have been defeated in Iraq, but it also displayed how successful a jihadist movement could be. And that's not going to stop with a victory, even as momentous as Mosul's. 
Uh, well, James, thank you so much for your time. Your book is is tremendous. I, I strongly encourage people to to pick it up and to read it. It's it's not only like riveting reporting; uh, it also provides some really good and useful history and, and context for understanding, I think, broader trend lines in the Middle East and, and Iraq. So, so thank you for writing it. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to James. That was very helpful. I much appreciated his time and the book is great. And one quick ask, if you are a regular listener to the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. Share the show, share this episode or any episode that was particularly insightful or meaningful to you. I appreciate your help in helping other people discover the show. So thank you. All right. Bye.